You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, what's up? How you doing this week? I'm doing okay. I'm a little weirded out by the, the weird little confines of the uh, podcast this week. Yes, we've got some close quarters going on this week as there's some fellows outside building us a fence. Uh, they're using a pretty loud saw to do it, so we are crammed into my office to re- record this this week, which... I feel like it's just a little bit more of an intimate setting. It's really going to allow you and me to get in touch with our feelings and uh, yeah. uh, maybe stay up late, open up a bottle of red wine, I don't know, share secrets. Yeah. For those out there trying to picture uh, what Chad's personal home office looks like, uh, you know how in those like detective movies where like the girl in the red dress comes in to offer the detective a case he knows he shouldn't take? Uh, it's like that, but if instead of a private detective, the dude was a, uh, a literary nerd who didn't throw stuff away. Are you accusing me of being a hoarder? I didn't use that word. That's not a word. That's not for me to say. You know what? I prefer to think of it as that this place has got some real character. We've <laughs> got the uh, uh, UFC media passes here on the wall yeah. right next to my, my picture of the 1908 Montana Grizzly football team. With my great grandfather Harry McClay yeah. pictured prominently as one of the captains. How do they? That is, that's not even enough guys to p- form a football. Oh, it was team. different back then. Okay. They didn't have the forward pass, so you didn't <laughs> right. need quite as many fellows. Forward pass ruined the game. Yes, me. Well, Ben, this week our music comes to us from Illit Beats, who you might remember have been on the podcast once before. No, with don't their remember. group Illiteracy. No, no. Uh, they're they're back this week with some instrumentals for us, which I like a lot. So we're going to go ahead and use those in between rounds. And for people that like their music, we'll put the links on uh, comainevent.com where they can find more from illiteracy and illit beats. Want to say it one more time? Illiteracy. You seem like you really enjoy that. As usual, this week's podcast comes to us in three rounds. In round number one, two really, really tall guys square off for the UFC light heavyweight title on Saturday at UFC 165. Does Alexander Gustafson's outstanding tallness make him the biggest threat yet to John Jones's dominance? And in round number two, BJ Penn is back, and he's decided that the thing that will help him keep up with Frankie Edgar for five rounds is an even tougher weight cut. And in round number three, did you ever notice that MMA seems a lot more comfortable being nice to boxing than boxing feels being nice to MMA? What's up with that? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Sam Fajents, and he writes... Over the last couple of shows, one or both of you, don't expect me to keep track, have expressed the opinion that you don't like it when one fighter asks his opponent to do VADA-style testing and then openly implies his opponent opponent is a steroid cheat when he refuses. The Roy Nelson strategy. 
I'd also like to know, or I'd like to know why this is a problem. We all agree that fighters should fight clean, and we all know that nobody can make either the UFC or the commissions implement widespread random testing. In that case, isn't the fact that some fighters are willing to publicly challenge their opponents actually one of the few catalysts for change that we have? Assuming they can get the money from somewhere, Rosie Sexton tried to crowdsource testing for her fight with Sheila Gaff, and both parties have no problem with the testing body, i.e. no one has got his foot in the door, then I'm quite happy to call a spade a spade and be fairly content that the guy who won't take part is probably a cheat and everyone knows it, and then in all caps he writes, DISCUSS. DISCUSS! Now, I remember that when you said this last week, because while we don't uh, rely on Sam to keep track, I remember, because you said it, and I was sat over here quietly, because I was like, <laughs> I, what the fuck's he talking about? That so maybe like you. you should explain yourself in well, this instance. My problem is that it seems like the supplemental testing agencies are just becoming material for guys to use against each other. Like like Roy Nelson jumping up and saying that he'll do random drug testing. Well, no shit you will, Roy Nelson. Of course you will. But just because the other guy says no, that doesn't necessarily mean... Or like the other guy doesn't want to pay to do it, that doesn't make him a steroid cheat. I mean, I can understand how... Uh, People will take it that way, and it seems like that's what everybody, the, the guy, a lot of fighters are relying on. That's the part that I don't like because I think that these supplemental testing agencies could be really useful. But if they're just going to be used as like PR battles by dudes who don't end up doing them anyway in the end, uh, most of the time it seems, then I think that is doing everyone a disservice. That's my problem with it. Seems like you're backtracking to me. Not back. Well, I mean, again, one thing I agree with Keith Kaiser on when I was talking to him about this Johnny Hendricks, GSP, Vada, Wada nonsense was that uh, signing up to do it doesn't automatically make you clean any more than not signing up to do it makes you automatically dirty. You know, I can understand how some guys, even clean fighters, if they're in a situation where they're not worried about their opponent using steroids, we might be like, yeah, what's there for me to gain by, you know, paying $10,000 and having them bust my ass for eight weeks through training camp about drug tests. I don't want to mess with that. And especially if you think that there's even the hint of a possibility that your opponent has a, an understanding with the testing agency, I can see how you wouldn't want to do that. Uh, so I don't know. It seems like it's too easy for people to just tar the guy who, who doesn't want to do it. Um, if he doesn't jump up right away and want to write a check, uh, I don't know. I don't feel like that gets us any closer to cleaning up the sport. Personally, if I was a fighter and I knew that I was clean and I had the money to do it, I would totally put my opponent on blast and say that we should sign up for some sort of extracurricular testing. And, and then if he didn't want to do it, I would publicly imply that he's a steroid user. I think that's that, great. That sounds just like you. But I mean, again, then I, in the first round of our fight, I would also always also kick him in the nuts because <laughs> I know if he tried to take his five minutes to recover, that he would come off looking like a pussy and I would therefore have gained an advantage. You know, with all the, the vast knowledge you have about how to be successful in MMA, it's a wonder that you aren't a UFC champion. Just kick him in the nuts, first thing. <laughs> well, also... You know Herb Dean is going to try to get him to take his five minutes. He's going to be like, no, no, man, you got time. You just just take it easy. And the other guy will be like, oh, let me at him. <laughs> the voice of reason, Herb Dean. The thing I would point out is that your your starting point, if I was a UFC fighter and I had the money, mm-hmm. right there you sure. disqualified like 95% for, of guys. For a lot of reasons. Yeah. Some of my best offense occurs after the other guy's been kicked in the nuts. <laughs> if you were a UFC fighter who had the money for $20,000 supplemental testing, you'd retire. You'd quit fighting. 
That's true. Uh, I would actually quit fighting the moment I got punched. Uh, The second question this week comes to us from Joshua Michaels, who writes, The UFC has recently released a fighter presumably for being a neo-Nazi. This seems like a decently well-thought-out PR move, but if it came out that GSP or Dominic Cruz were neo-Nazis, do they get cut as well? Frankly, I don't care what crazy bullshit any of these guys believe. No more than I care about anyone's, really. Are radicals to be ironically segregated from the mainstream fight promotions? Or do we live in a society where a fighter's personal belief system has job-maintaining importance? Remember when Ronda Rousey was echoing conspiracy theories right after the Newtown shooting? That kind of shit. (laughs) Now, I think we should point out that that being a known neo-Nazi is a little bit different than, than simply retweeting a conspiracy theory video, which is what Ronda Rousey did. And frankly, after she did that, we talked about it on this show. We talked about how dumb it was and about how, how why the conspiracy uh, ideology is so easy and seductive for people to fall into. Uh, and she so, just thought it raised some interesting questions. We're, in, a, we're in agreement that that was dumb. Yes. That she should not have that. She should not have did that as Carl Malone would say. Uh, <laughs> but, that is different from this fella that they signed recently who turned out there's some photos on the internet of him broing down with neo-Nazis. That's Benjamin, just a, Benjamin Brinsa. Benson, Benjamin Brinsa. Yeah, that's a, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. Yeah. Well, and see, here's the thing. It's the difference between if he were somebody who was like, well, I don't know. I think the purity of the white race should be maintained, and that's just my belief. That is abhorrent, but still different from belonging to like a neo-Nazi fight team, which I'm going to say probably isn't too far from going out in the streets and committing some acts of violence uh, based on your white supremacist theory. I think there's a difference between you know believing something or just like thinking stupid shit, which a lot of people in the MMA sphere can be accused of and like being in a group that that acts on stuff like that. Also though I thought was strange was when Dana White saying like yeah we don't really do too many like, background checks on these dudes when we sign them and then but then hey as soon as we find out it's a neo nazi dudes out of there. It's like really you didn't didn't want to look around on this a little bit beforehand? Maybe we're going to start doing that? No, it doesn't even seem like they're going to do that. Add more to Joshua Michaels's question. Uh, it was, I mean, I don't know if you can even say it was a smart PR move. It was the only PR move for the <laughs> UFC yes. once they found out they had signed a neo-Nazi. Uh, but I think to the question of whether or not they would cut somebody like GSP or Dominic Cruz, I mean, shoot, they might end up having to cut Dominic Cruz anyway, neo-Nazi or no, uh, it probably depends on the level of involvement with a uh, reprehensible group and or belief system. You know, clearly they're not going to fire a meal ticket like Ronda Rousey just because she retweets some conspiracy theory uh, YouTube video. Uh, you know, if it turned out GSP was going out in the streets and, and beating up immigrants or something like that, probably you would have to cut him because that has the potential to turn into a ridiculous public relations nightmare for the still somewhat fringy company and sport that he represents. Yeah. Uh, The quote that I was referencing, I have it right here from Dana White, who said, we don't do investigations on guys from Germany that sign with us. What happens is if we sign a guy and something like this starts to surface, then we dive in and do our homework and then make a decision from there. You can't really know everybody you sign. Look at the Aaron Hernandez situation in Boston. It's too hard. Hmm. I'm just going to offer that without comment. Third question this week comes to us from Luke Hanawell. And he writes, can we talk about Pat Healy? Why, yes, Luke. 
We can. By all fucking means. How important is this is this fight for him? It feels like he had all the momentum after his last performance just to have it taken away due to his failed drug test. And since then, it seems like he's fallen under the radar when discussing top lightweight contenders. Will a win put him right back, quote-unquote, in the mix? And who could you see the UFC matching up against him up against moving forward? Discuss, dot, dot, dot. Now, clearly, he's referring to uh, Pat Healy's win over Jim Miller at UFC 159, which was later overturned and turned into a no contest because Healy tested positive for marijuana. And uh, in the wake of that, actually, uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission, even though this occurred in New Jersey, uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission, at least, has, what, tripled their yeah. their uh, threshold for marijuana, testing positive for marijuana? Which must just drive you fucking nuts if you're somebody who's been popped for marijuana in Nevada and faced, like, you know, serious career repercussions and, and financial maybe that they repercussions. And you heavily? Yeah. Now it's cool, man. No yeah. big deal. Now it might have been cool if you'd have just done it a few months later. I mean, that's got to just drive you crazy. That's when the whole thing starts to seem just infuriatingly arbitrary. You know what I bet, though? I bet they'll give that money back. You you what? I bet they'll give that money back that they took from Nick Diaz and all those other guys that tested positive. They'll probably just cut him a check. Yeah, you think so? Here's your fine money back, Nick Diaz. Maybe just give it to him in rolling papers and weed? Hell no, man. Keith Kaiser's got to pay that phone bill somehow. <laughs> He's keeping that money. Yeah, okay. Back to Pat Healy, um, it does seem like he he came in with a, a good run behind him in Strikeforce, and it seemed like even Strikeforce never really expected him to be as successful as he was. Then he comes in there and beats Jim Miller, which nobody really expects. Submits Jim Miller. Nobody expected him to do that. Then, because of a little bit of weed, everybody, first, you know, the talk around him gets caught up in Nate Diaz calling... Uh, Brian Caraway, some some not so nice names for accepting money that the UFC wanted to give him when they took uh, Pat Healy's bonus away, and then we all pretty much stopped talking about Pat Healy, and then now he's coming back to fight uh, Nurmi. Yeah, he's your guy Nurmi, Habib Nurmagomedov. Like I said, Nurmi nailed it. <laughs> yeah, and he, you know, uh, Pat Healy. You're right to say that Pat Healy is one of these guys that just keeps winning fights that everyone thinks he's going to lose, which is an easy guy to like. I think, um, and he had won six fights in a row during his his strike force run. He has not lost since he got choked out by Josh Thompson in June of 2010. So he's got a nice little run going for himself in what is a very very tough division. And then his win over Jim Miller was his seventh in a row, which is nothing to sneeze at. And you don't see often guys who like have over 40 pro fights then hit their stride and kind of find a renaissance, which it seems like he's done. That's uncommon. Then again, though, even though he has you know nearly 50 pro fights at this point, he's only like 30 years old. Uh, so uh, it's possible he learned some hard lessons out there on the on the road, uh, like like old timey pro wrestlers uh, driving back and forth between Calgary and Saskatoon or whatever made up Canadian cities they do that stuff in. Yes, and you know Luke is right to point out that he totally has fallen off the table in terms of uh, the way that we discussed the lightweight division since that positive test. Uh, you got to think though, if he comes out and beats Nurmi, that that'll put him put him back on the radar because beating uh, Nurmagomedov and Jim Miller in your first two UFC fights, uh, at least your first two UFC fights in this run. I don't know if Pat Healy ever fought previously during the. He the did. Old, he, fought, he fought Anthony Torres at like UFC Fight Night Six and got submitted during the olden times. And that was right after 
he had submitted Carlos Condit in his fight right before that. Wow. So, yeah, you come in uh, and beat those two guys after getting back into the UFC. That's you should. That's a guy who needs to be taken seriously. And I would think if he is able to to come out victorious this weekend, you you got to put him against someone top ten ish. Yeah. I mean, fringy maybe, but uh, but someone who's who's a known guy who who a win over would would actually really mean something in the division. Well, and I feel like I do the thing with this where if you get popped for steroids or something, and then it gets changed to a no contest, then then fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna think of that one. Uh, as just a, a gray spot on your record. But with the Jim Miller one, you get popped for smoking a little bit of weed. I'm still regarding that as a win. Fuck it. Fuck everybody. I don't care what you say about it. I still think of that as a win. See, I use a positive marijuana test to overturn most of my ping pong and Xbox losses. <laughs> Xbox losses. Pretty much all the time. If the yeah. other guy's high, I just chalk it up as a win. Third question this week comes to us from published author and friend of the podcast, Matthew Pauly. I assume it's the same Matthew Polly. Yeah, that, how many that, Matthew Pollys can there be? That we all know. Uh, he writes, The new tough gave all the fighters tagline descriptions. Here are the women's. Jessamine Duke, former model. Peggy Morgan, literature professor. Roxanne Mataferi, English teacher in Japan. Sarah Morass, waitress. Raquel Pennington, med student. Here are the men. Chris Holdsworth, jiu-jitsu black belt. Tim Gorman. Nicknamed the Psycho. Anthony Gutierrez, cell phone sales rep. Chris Beal, cancer survivor. And Louis Fizette lives with his parents. <laughs> First series of questions. What the fuck did Louis Fizette do to piss off the producers? <laughs> Was there nothing better they could say about him? Plays with dolls or tortures furry animals? Second set of questions. Will this show serve as a new chapter for the updated edition of Hannah Rawson's book, The End of Men? For the women, they find a professor, a teacher in Japan, and a med student, but they can only find one dude with a job? <laughs> Good point. I think a couple things are going on here. One, as we said before on the podcast, the, the reason the, the men on this season of Fighter are, are kind of being overshadowed is because they've gone through so many different male seasons of the ultimate fighter that it's almost like if you were worth a damn we'd heard about you by now or you'd already been on the ultimate fighter or been in the ufc and whereas frankly if you were any good they would just sign you to a contract yeah. and have you fight in the ufc <laughs> yeah. you would just skip the whole ultimate fighter 19 step yeah you wouldn't be there at the tryouts uh, but with the female fighters since the division is still so new um there's a lot of of grizzled veterans just trying to use that as their opportunity to get in the UFC when, you know, if the UFC had had a women's division, they would have been UFC caliber a long time ago. So that's that's one thing that's happening there, I think, anyway, unless you want to dispute that. No, show. I think that's true. I also think that if you are a female fighter like, say, uh, Roxanne Mataferi, even though you've been a fighter for a really long time, you certainly weren't earning no living doing that's that. That's the other thing. And so, yeah, of course you're an English teacher in Japan because you got to pay the bills. That's the other thing, is that the the option is way more viable for the male fighters on the season that maybe they didn't need a job uh, because, or they didn't need a job other than like working the front desk at the gym where they trained uh, and, or, you know, taking on a few personal training clients, stuff like that, because they were, were fighting and were earning a living and, and getting by through the various things that go along with that. Whereas uh, the women, damn it, you better have a job because that shit is not going to pay the bills for most of them. I think that's probably a valid point. Also, I mean, I do wonder though if you're a even if you're a male fighter on the level of a guy who's just going to be on tough, 
probably be pretty hard to earn anything other than a, just a, a mere subsistence living as a professional fighter. Um, so I would say if I had to guess, there's probably also something else going on here. And I think that that, that is it likely behooves the UFC and the producers of the ultimate fighter on this first season of having female fighters on there to, to, to put them over uh, like Rover uh, and try to make them look as good as possible. Maybe even during the casting process, try to choose a bunch of people who, who come off as serious professionals and not uh, people who live with their parents, I yeah. guess as, as the extreme well, and maybe, mirror image of that. <laughs> maybe this seems is just like, anecdotal evidence that has warped my thinking of it but it does seem like of the the female fighters who i know and the male fighters i know it seems way more likely that if you just pick one at random way more likely that the female fighter has like a college degree and something resembling a career uh or like like colleen schneider didn't even make it on the house because she got beat by Shayna baszler like she has like a physics degree from berkeley or something you know like that seems more likely with with female fighters than with male fighters but I could be just making that up. It could also be that they're just smarter than we are. That That's incredibly likely. Especially smarter than you. <laughs> Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Oh, brother. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, something you would like to air to the co-main event podcast, uh, if you want to write in and ask why Ben's articles aren't as interesting now as they used to be, like some guy did this week, you know how to get a hold of us. Well, you didn't even, we didn't talk about that one? No, I, I didn't even forward that one along to you. But you know why? Because I'm looking after your self-esteem. Well, and the answer is pretty easy because I'm phoning it in. That's right. Uh, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comaineventpodcast.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to roll straight into round number one. Ben, conventional wisdom tells us that Alexander Gustafson could be one of the more interesting matchups for John Jones in the light heavyweight division, at least based on size alone. Gustafson is listed at six foot five with a reach of seventy six point five inches, though I guess now he's decided to dispute that. Uh, while Jones is six foot four and has a reach of eighty four point five inches. Obviously, uh, Gustafson has pretty good striking, but are we meant to tune into this one just because of the tail of the tape? I'm I'm infuriated by it at this point. Maybe it's because I've seen the ad that basically acts like this is going to be a contest to see you know who can get the cereal off the top shelf, uh, and I've seen that ad probably sixty seventy times by now, thanks to uh, watching UFC events on Fox Sports One. So now I'm just entirely sick. Of that storyline. Also, do you really feel like the the reason John Jones has been kicking everybody's asses is because he's taller than them? Because uh, I don't think so. No, I'm not, like he's submitting motherfuckers. That's right. Uh, I I would say no that the uh, size doesn't really have anything to do with it. I mean, clearly it's got something to do with it, but but it, it, it's more to the to the point that Jones is just that much better than everybody else. Uh, I think, first of all, if you're the UFC, you need to think of a way to start selling us these fights, and I guess if you got one tall guy find another tall guy, the easiest way to do it is to 
bill it as two tall guys and yeah. a guy who's going to test John Jones's length and reach in a way that nobody else has. Uh, I don't know that I give that a ton of credence, especially since it ain't going to matter if Alexander Gustafson gets taken down immediately. Uh, but I think you can make the valid point that John Jones hasn't fought very many physically imposing guys recently. He's, uh, especially in his last few fights, kind of made his living beating up middleweights, you know, beat right. up Chael Sonnen, beat up Vitor Belfort. Even the last couple of light heavyweights that he fought, Rashad Evans, Leoto Machida, and uh, Shogun Hua, I'm excluding Qu- Quinton Jackson from that list, but like those guys are not huge light heavyweights. Any any one of those guys could probably make 185 if he wanted to. I mean, you look back at the beginning of John Jones's UFC career, and he fought a bunch of big dudes. Stefan Bonner is pretty huge. Jake O'Brien is huge. Uh, Brandon Vera is pretty big. And then you got Vladimir Matyushenko and Ryan Bader. All those guys are big. John Jones whipped their ass. He's bigger than all of them. He's bigger than all of them, and I wouldn't go as, as far to say as any of those guys is a top-level fighter in this division. But, I mean, I think you're looking at a situation where they needed to sell this fight. John Jones is obviously much, much better than everyone else in this division. They needed to give you a hook that's going to be easy for people to tune in to watch, and uh, that's that's the one they went with. I guess so. I think part of the reason, like, if you look around at the light heavyweight division, they're not a bunch of like huge guys in it who are really successful other than like John Jones and Alexander Gustafson. Like I think most of the time, if you're a big dude, like if you're over, you know, six, three ish, uh, and got some size on you, you'd almost be better off going to heavyweight where the, the fighters, uh, historically in MMA have just not been as athletic. You know, it seems like you'd be a little better off there than just trying to be like get by as a light heavyweight where your thing is you're really big and you're muscling people around. That doesn't seem to work that well. Uh, I also think, though, that John Jones has a point when he says, look, yeah, we're similar in height and not, you know, miles apart on reach, but we're very different kind of fighters and we don't do very much that's similar. Um, so it seems like when you do start trying to like compare, like, hey, it's a couple of tall guys. We're going to get in there and do tall guy stuff to each other. Uh, it does lead to people to think that you're trying to say, like, oh, the, you know, John Jones is, is going to fight his reflection in the mirror for a change here. And that's not the case at all. I feel like instead, think about how Alexander Gustafson actually got here. Like, it wasn't just by being a tall, lanky dude. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly, we, we can't take nothing away from him. The dude has won something like six fights in a row in the in the light heavyweight division. Uh, I will say, and again, we always talk about you can do this to almost anybody. I'm not sure how Im- impressive his win streak looks in retrospect. He's, he hasn't beaten a ton of, of what I called earlier top-level fighters in this division, and I think that his sort of signature win, which was the uh, decision win over Shogun Hua uh, back in December of last year, uh, doesn't seem quite as impressive now that Chael Sonnen has gone up to 205 and just started choking motherfuckers out. Uh, so it, it's going to be a pretty good test for for Alexander Gustafson. I was actually just looking at the uh, the John Jones statistics over on MMAJunkie.com. Shameless plug for your guys, by the way. Boom. Uh, and I was I was just looking at them earlier today, and they're like they're even more impressive than you would think just from being like, oh, John Jones. He's the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world and is the light heavyweight champion and is just way better than everyone else. It's like he's already got the 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 most consecutive wins. You know, he's up there with the title defense record. He needs about 300 days to eclipse Tito Ortiz as the longest reigning light heavyweight champion of all time. It's it's it was surprising to me when I when I looked at it. Uh, 
just to see exactly how dominant he's been and, and how close he is to sort of being, you know, undisputed as the best light heavyweight of all time, especially this this early in his career or what you might assume is this early in his career. Uh, you know, meanwhile, like I said, Gustafson hasn't really fought any top level fighters. And I, I don't think we can overlook the fact also that he hasn't fought since last December. That win against Shogun Hu was his last fight. Uh, owing to the fact that he had to cancel his scheduled fight against Gegard Mousasi at the last minute due to the cut he suffered in training, which was what uh, you might remember as the debacle that brought us the gem that was Gegard Mousasi against Alir Latifi. Yeah, um, a man who Dana White literally did not know how to spell his name when he signed him to, to step into a UFC main event. So I'm not exactly sure what the odds are here, uh, but I think once you start... Jones about 7-1, to 7-1, to one, that's pretty high. Uh, once you start looking at the, at the evidence, I think uh, you start to come to the conclusion that this is probably a fight that Jones is going to win. Now, that said, I think there's, there's been some stuff going on leading up to this fight that might give a person pause. Uh, are, are you referring here to John Jones' aspirations to become an actor? A thespian? That's right. Not a man o- of the theater? Not only that, but like his willingness to talk about it leading up to what we all uh, concede might be one of the toughest tests of his, of his career. And not just talk about it, but sort of talk about it in great detail about how he wants to be like The Rock and have a career that, that rivals The Rock's in terms of uh, uh, you know success on the silver screen, which good luck with that yeah frankly <laughs> way more likely that uh you follow in the footsteps of lennox lewis uh who goes does does some movie stuff comes back gets knocked out by uh Haseem rahman and then has to be like oh wait a minute hold on i'm a fighter that's the reason why i'm famous to begin with so let me get serious about that again and go get my belt back that seems way more likely for for just about any young mma champion out there yeah, so if you were going to make a doomsday proclamation here, I think you would have some stuff to point to in terms of Jones maybe being a little bit unfocused. Uh, he also, a couple months ago, tweeted out that picture of himself looking a little chunky, letting it get a little raggedy in the cage, so to speak. Although, I think a situation like that, uh, moreover, just points out what a weird subsection of society we're dealing with here, where a dude tweets that picture out and everybody's like, dude, you are gross. What is up, <laughs> fatso? It's like, ah, oh, the guy he gained like 20 pounds. <laughs> Probably if you saw him walking around in the streets with his shirt off, he'd, or shirt on, he would still look like a, an enormous dude who would kick your ass. So you're saying uh, the best reason there is to think that there might be an upset or the title might change hands is not the fact that John Jones is fighting another tall dude, but that John Jones might just fuck up. I mean, that's one of the things that we see, def- like, undermine greatness, right? Is a lack of focus and, and maybe even getting bored and guys not doing the same kind of preparation that they had done in the past. And, you know, we always hear that after the fact when it happens to guys. So I don't know if, if it's mostly lip service or if it's them kind of trying to backtrack and uh, explain a loss both to other people and themselves, which yeah. I think we both know fighters will go to great, great lengths to do. Uh, but yeah, yeah. After, the, after the loss, all your mistakes are so clear, <laughs> so evident. If I, were, uh, if I were one of the guys, one of John Jones's spiritual leaders, I might... Uh, I might be a little nervous about that aspect of it. Although, shit, man, I don't know if you can worry about that. He's been so much better than everybody else. It might not even matter. He might just go out there and blow the doors off Alexander Gustafson. And 
I also don't want to totally overlook Alexander Gustafson. I mean, that, that dude can fight. He's not a he's not a bum. He's not a he's not going to be a pushover. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination. But by the same token, it's hard to sit here and say that you think anybody in the light heavyweight division is going to beat John Jones at this point. That doesn't mean it can't happen. I just wouldn't bet on it. Yeah, and you know the thing about John Jones that I think makes him less susceptible to. Taking guys too lightly, getting unfocused, is that he'll, he'll start to seem that way, you know, months out from a fight or when he doesn't have the next challenger clearly booked yet. Uh, but when you start to talk to him in the weeks leading up to a fight, he always seems to find some way to like act as though he has been personally offended or like that the other guy has, has fucked up somehow. Uh, and, and now he has to go in there and make the guy pay. Like he seems to find a way to get a little bit angry. Um, at the other, and this one, it seems like he's getting angry at the comparisons, uh, between himself and Alexander Gustafson, where, you know, people think just because, Hey, the dude is taller than him, that it means that he can do something to him that other people haven't done. He, that seems to be like the thing he seized on and that that's going to be his, his fire for this one. As long as he's doing that, I don't worry too much about him getting complacent. Uh, I'd also think that if you were one of his spiritual leaders, and by the way, I don't know why you're not, because I think that you would really fit in well with that role. My contact is out there, man. <laughs> Just say. Hey, he knows how to get a hold of me. Yeah. He knows where I'm at. Yeah. John Jones, have your people contact Chad Dundas's people, also known as the fake alias email account Chad has to pretend like he has some people. Uh, but I think that... Uh, as long as he still is, is aware enough to realize, you know the reason why anybody's talking to you about being in movies and, and all that other shit is because you keep beating people up and staying UFC champion. You don't have that, all that other stuff goes away. I have to think he realizes that. You'd think so. I mean, he's a smart dude, which I think is one of the things that kind of gets lost in the shuffle of us always talking about his physical gifts and how far ahead of everybody else he is. One of the reasons that he is that far ahead of everybody else is that he's super smart. And we'll do what, you know, he'll find the, the, the thing that, uh, that he has to do to beat his opponent and do it, regardless of what anybody thinks about it. Uh, I guess you could make the argument that in his more recent fights, he's gone out there and tried to outdo his opponent at the thing that his opponent does best. But, eh, it's all part of the game as far as, uh, as, far as he's concerned. I think that uh, if you ever saw him get in trouble like he did against Vitor Belfort, he goes back to, uh, to smart guy game plan and takes him down and fills his face full of elbows. And elbow-sized holes, for that matter. Yeah. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Ben, I don't know if you saw this week that the Louisiana State Athletic Commission passed what they called an emergency rule prohibiting professional fighters from competing in that state if they have breast implants. Oh, no. Now, the... I have to go. The Louisiana State Athletic Commission was, was sure to not genderize this and not uh, refer to either sex as being the uh, population of fighters that would be affected by this rule, but I think we can all agree that it will affect one population more than the other. And frankly, I'm not entirely sure what to say, other than the fact that if you want to have an MMA fight now in that state, presumably you could cut 35, 25 pounds in order to make weight. I don't know, maybe come in all gassed up on TRT. But you can't have fake boobs. Nope. As one of the members of the commission said, Harold Williams, quote, if they want to look good, then they don't have to be in the ring. Huh. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh, you fucking kidding me? 
Well, as long as we're handing these out to athletic commissions, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, this, I'm not even really going to direct this one at the New Jersey Athletic Commission, um, but more at the situation. Uh, as you might have heard over the weekend, uh, Elvis Mutopchik, nailed it, uh, was uh, supposed to fight Jesse Taylor. Um, and Wait, the, J- Jesse J.T. Money Taylor? J.T. Money. Okay, yeah. he's still out there. Good I know you're know. familiar with his poetry. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, and apparently one of the uh, commission officials uh, saw or said they saw uh, your man Elvis taking some prescription meds backstage. He denies that. There were prescription meds around. He went and got his own drug test. Uh, and, uh, apparently was even clean and is thinking about suing the New Jersey commission. Uh, but the New Jersey commission is basically taking the position of, Hey, there were prescription pills back there. We don't care who took them or who didn't or what was going on with them. They shouldn't have been there. And therefore that's why we went ahead and canceled the fight again. Come up, come in all gassed up on TRT, as you say, and New Jersey probably even gassed up on silicone breast implants, but God help you if there's some pills laying around, even if you don't have any in your system, your fight just isn't going to happen, doesn't even get off the ground. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back in mere moments with round number two. BJ Penn is back, Chad. He's back. The prodigy. He's back in the building. After a brief retirement, uh, which we all, I thought, agreed was for the best after he had taken a beating against uh, Rory McDonald, BJ Penn, sitting around on his island oasis, decided, you know what would fix all my problems? If I lost about 25 pounds, got down to an even more excruciating weight than the one at which I was previously a champion and fought a guy who's already beat me twice. Now, I mean, that makes, that's, that logic is unassailable. I think we can both agree. Yes, sir. The, the initial reaction, I would say, across the board is one of disbelief. Because <laughs> as we all uh, have witnessed in the past, BJ Penn has never been a guy who seemed particularly motivated around training uh, and, and therefore was a guy who, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily come into his fights not only in the best shape, but didn't seem particularly interested in in making the the, the lightest possible weight that he could. Uh, and you know, we saw there towards toward the end of I guess career part one that uh, he went up to uh, to welterweight, bounced back and forth a little bit between welterweight and lightweight uh, before uh, a couple of performances where it, it seemed like maybe his heart just wasn't in it anymore, and. Uh, went ahead and, and packed it in. Um, and now he comes back uh, trying to get to what you have to assume is the lowest possible weight class uh, that, 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 that he could possibly make that being featherweight. Um, That's the thing too. You, you can't tell me BJ Penn has weighed 145 pounds since like middle school, right? No, here's the thing. This whole situation strikes me as one that BJ Penn has just been thinking about too much. Like, uh, you know, when you when you are in middle school and your girlfriend breaks up with you and you just start you can't stop 
can't stop thinking about it. And eventually you start to think some real crazy stuff. <laughs> and you have to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait a second, self. Let's back up here. I think that's kind of what BJ Penn is doing with his fighting career at this point. We saw some reports that he's been, quote, dealing with some demons. And you got to think that a guy who has unilaterally been regarded as one of the most talented guys ever to fight in the UFC, but a guy that didn't necessarily always apply himself to the fullest, probably retired, went back to Hawaii, and got the chance to sit around and just think about that. And eventually... Maybe his mind started turning himself in circles a little bit, and he was forced to come up with what we think is the just unthinkable assertion that what he needs to do is cut down to 145 and fight the guy who just beat him twice. Yeah, beat him twice by being quicker than he was for the most part. As if, yeah, I'll, I'll go down even further in weight at my in my mid 30s where the weight cuts are not getting any easier uh and that'll solve my problems against this guy if you're the ufc do you not want a test cut here you're not like if you're you know dana white exchanging his notorious text messages uh with fighters who are telling him what they want are you not like okay bro send me a picture where i can see your toes on the scale and the numbers one four five on that scale yeah, and, you know, obviously we don't know what happens behind the scenes in that regard, but it sure seemed like the UFC jumped on this pretty fast. We know that they, uh, you know, they've arranged these two guys to coach opposite each other on the next season of The Ultimate Fighter, um, and it seemed like almost as a fallback mechanism because they were originally planning to have uh, Frankie Edgar coach opposite Uriah Faber, which I think we all uh, looked at and, and assumed would be the fight when Uriah Faber started talking about super fights and whatnot. Much that, more intriguing uh, fight for me. It is, it is a much better fight, but I guess they couldn't agree on a weight class or whatever. Um, so the UFC, I don't know if they had to scramble. Maybe that's not the right word, but they ended up coming up with this pairing of Frankie Edgar against BJ Penn. Uh, so we don't know how much due diligence has been done. We don't know if, if, uh, if BJ has made 145. We don't know if they've had the assurance that he could make 145. You got to assume that they have had at least had him put his, his hand on the Bible and swear to it or something because otherwise it just, doesn't seem possible. Now they just but, text uh, Mike Dolce. You think he can make 45? Well, I'd have him at 45 in two weeks. All right, cool. We'll book it. They're going with it. And you know what? Here's the thing. I'm not actually going to complain about this fight because if the UFC wants me to sit at home and watch Frankie Edgar beat up BJ Payne again, I got no problem with that. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's exactly how Frankie Edgar feels as well. The thing that I don't like is that we're going to have to Put this fight through suffering the indignity of an entire season of The Ultimate Fighter before we finally get to watch them actually fight. If they do make it that far, which we have learned in the past is not always the case with The Ultimate Fighter. And I feel like the UFC always does this, keeps doing this, like announcing these coaching pairings for the ultimate fighter like we're supposed to get super fired up and be like oh yeah man season 19,000 is gonna be awesome <laughs> when the truth is dude it doesn't matter who your coaches are at this point you could have in his prime frank gotch against in his prime muhammad ali and it would still be the same goddamn show we've seen uh 15 16 times before and that's if you took a couple seasons off. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like almost the the reality show part of it is going to be BJ Penn's best opportunity to shine. Uh, and who knows if he really is 
working through some demons might be the most interesting part of this pairing. Uh, I think uh, BJ Penn still, you know, pretty charismatic guy in his own way. Uh, you know his fans uh, will watch him no matter what the hell he's doing. Uh, and if he loses, we'll come up with any number of excuses to explain that away. Uh, so from that perspective, not a bad move on the UFC's part. You mentioned, though, that yeah, if you're Frankie Edgar, why not beat up BJ Penn again? I got to assume that it's for a payoff that, that he thinks, you know, the UFC is going to give him a, a pretty good deal to do that. Cause otherwise, what is in it for Frankie Edgar at this point? Why you've already beat him twice. If you beat him a third time, it's not like anybody's like, okay, well, that proves it. We had, we had some doubt about it, but now that one is, I mean, no, you got those two wins over him. If you're Frankie Edgar, if you're trying to get closer to a belt, does it get you any closer to beat BJ Penn for a third time when he comes out of a retirement? We all wish he would have stayed in. I don't see it. No, it probably doesn't. And, and, and that's why I think that he's probably, like you said, got to be getting some significant financial consideration, uh, paid his way to do this. Maybe even to just even do the ultimate fighter, you know, either that or he's just super stoked about the Harley Davidson they're going to give him or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's got to be it. And frankly, to see, uh, Frankie Edgar hauling ass down the New Jersey highway riding a Harley Davidson. Pretty sweet, dude. If you ever got to actually see that in the flesh. Maybe he's got his earbuds in there playing the Rocky theme. <laughs> Here's my uh, crazy question, though. Because BJ Penn was pretty goddamn good at lightweight when he was doing the damn thing for real and in his prime. We assume that he he can't make 145 or that it will be ridiculously hard for him to do that and it will some in some way sap the already limited uh energy reserves that we've seen him have in the past if we're wrong about that and he can make it and he he does come in undrained in good shape can bj pan at this stage in his life be a force at featherweight you mean your your question basically is if all the things we think are true based on past experience turn out not to be true, can things be different in the future? In my own defense, I did preface it by saying, here's my crazy question. Okay. But yeah, if, if he does this the right way and he, and he handles his business and he gets down to 145, can BJ Penn be a factor at featherweight? Okay, well, that seems like a different question the second time around. You were just asking if he can make the weight, can he be a factor? Uh, I'm going to say he makes the weight, um, maybe even just does it smarter this time around, and then maybe it's not a, a huge issue for him, and he still gets beat by Frankie Edgar. I don't see him beating Frankie Edgar. Uh, I don't care what weight it's at. Yeah, on top of everything, on top of all of the other things that we've talked about for nine minutes in this round, the fact that you would come out of retirement and pick Frankie Edgar is like the cherry on top of the Sunday of bad decisions, man. <laughs> Just like, why do that? Why not? Why not? Even if you wanted to go to featherweight, why not fight somebody that you knew you could beat and then maybe fight Frankie Edgar or someone else entirely? Well, Okay, but if we're just going to be crazy hypotheticals, say he does make 145 and say he's back to the old crazy man at the bus stop BJ Penn mumbling under his breath, just knocking people out. Uh, and say he goes out there and he knocks Frankie Edgar out. Then 
I, I'm willing to completely revise my position on this. Because, you know, BJ Penn does seem to be a special kind of fighter in a lot of ways. Uh, especially when you think about how much he managed to do while also doing so little uh, for a large part of his career. So who knows? The thing with BJ Penn, though, is always consistency. I could see him coming back there, shocking the world, knocking Frankie Edgar out, and then showing up for the next fight like, uh, not really too into it. You just never know with that guy. You can't plan too far ahead. And even then, the best case scenario, that next fight that you refer to, that next fight probably against Frankie Edgar. Because then you're just going to be two and one against the guy. So we're, think- we're thinking best of seven? <laughs> yeah, we might as well just go best of seven. Just like the World Series, we'll figure this thing out. Well, that's going to do it for uh, round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Then, by all accounts, Floyd Mayweather whooped up on Canelo Alvarez this weekend in the main event of their hashtag the one and hashtag pay-per-view event. By now, we all know the particulars. People are estimating somewhere around 2.3 million pay-per-view buys. Floyd Mayweather made $40 million. Some judge turned in a ridiculous scorecard and blah, blah, blah. Basically, this was the one weekend a year that boxing can pretend to still be king shit of fuck mountain. And meanwhile, in the process, a bunch of MMA people did a lot of coverage of the fight, while a couple of high-profile boxing people talked some shit about MMA. I guess my opening question is, why they do that? Why they do that? I don't know. I honestly don't know why any of those people do that. Uh, you know, for those... Listening at home and wondering, uh, whether Chad Dundas and I watched the fight. Uh, obviously we weren't able to make it because Great White and Slaughter were playing a show in Missoula that we also weren't going to pay to see. Um, so we went and stood on our friend's lawn and, uh, drank beers and listened to the, the sounds of, of Slaughter and, and Great White going through their, their lonely, Long forgotten hits. Going through the motions, yes. I think, would be the proper way to... And they to, did. Uh, they, I mean, they really mailed it in, if you're wondering about Slaughter and Great White. Uh, but, you know, it is weird, especially because when you talk about how many, like, MMA media people will get serious about, like, boxing coverage for, like, a Floyd Mayweather fight. And on one hand, I guess I see the uh, the argument that, hey, our readers want this. It's a combat sport. You know, it's not so far away from MMA at the same time, it's a different sport. It's a completely different sport. I don't know. I mean, and it also seems weird that, like, you're just going to cover when there's a really big fight. Like, you're not going to cover the sport regularly. You know, when they go back to just doing, like, events on Showtime and HBO and stuff, you're not going to really cover those. Uh, you're just going to do the one or two big fights that you think you might get some traffic out of. That seems weird to me. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. It doesn't bother me that much. Uh, you know, I've, I've already come out and said that I feel like niche MMA sites should be niche MMA sites and cover MMA. And when they do things like cover, uh, 
uh, meta metamorosis, whatever it was, grappling tournament that, that it's, it's, I don't feel like it really is within their, their purview. Uh, if you're going to cover one big boxing fight a year, that is, is obviously the biggest fight of, of the year and is, and that everyone seems to be wild about for whatever reason. I don't have a ton of, of issue with that. And hell, man, I like boxing. I think boxing's awesome. If I find myself sit down in front of a boxing fight these days, I'll watch it. I'll watch the shit out of it. Uh, the thing that, that, that bothers me more or the thing that I find more of a conundrum is why a lot of these high profile boxing types can't seem to make their peace with the mixed fights, with the dog eat dog style fights. Uh, and I don't know if a situation where, if it's a situation where boxing is like the cranky old grandpa that, yes. that, uh, I'm going to say yes, that That's can't, it. can't get with the kids and their, and their dubstep music. Uh, meanwhile, the kids will bring grandpa the candy bar that he likes when they go to the nursing home to visit him. I don't know if a situation where, uh, if it's a situation where one of those two sports feels a little bit more, uh, uh, sure of itself in terms of its place in the modern landscape, that being mixed martial arts. And, yes, that too. And bo- that boxing feels, uh, probably rightly that it, that it, it, the future is not as bright as say it once may have been although shit man they they sure can have a hullabaloo once a year gotta you gotta give them that much i just wish that uh that boxing seemed like it was as cool with us as we are with boxing sometimes that's a fair point and you know and there's i saw the clip obviously we didn't watch the fight but i saw the clip of uh bob sheridan the boxing commentator talking about how Oh, people are saying MMA is eclipsing boxing, but look here, it's obviously not true because we had this one fight, you know, and it's the only fight on the card that anybody really cares about. And then once it's over, you'll go back to months and months of, you know, nothing really where you'll, you'll barely be able to, to make a dent in the larger sporting consciousness, uh, until, you know, Floyd Mayweather or Manny Pacquiao or somebody, uh, fights again. And then, you know, you, you'll go through the whole process over and over again. You know, for me, I think boxing was my first combat sports love uh, and then, you know, got into MMA. But I feel differently about boxing now. I probably because of overexposure to MMA that now when I watch it, I mean, I'll still watch a good boxing match and I'll I'll enjoy it. Um, But it's hard for me to watch. Like when I watch a guy like Floyd Mayweather, especially with his style, all I keep thinking is, man, it'd just be so easy to ankle pick that guy. He's just going to lean out there over his front foot, huh? All right, just reach down, just pick up his ankle, put him on his back, or he's probably about as dangerous as a baby seal, uh, and then uh, elbow him in the face. You know, it, it is hard for me to kind of go backwards uh, in turn. And I realize that they're different sports. Like, But it also seems like, hey, if we came up with a sport where two dudes fought each other, but they could only hit each other with the open hand of their left hand between the collarbone and the belly button. I bet that the dudes who did that sport would get really good at like (laughs) one-handed body shot shot karate chops. Those dudes would be the best in the world at that. I don't know that that would make them uh, great fighters, however. And I I, I feel like the, the specialization of it now... And the the lack of finishes most of the time, uh, it feels boring compared to MMA to me. But that's me. I mean, I'm not saying nobody should watch boxing or that you, all you motherfuckers who, who dare talk about boxing versus MMA should all go to hell. I, I don't care. You like whatever you like. Uh, but, yeah, it, I, I get annoyed sometimes when fans and people will do this on Twitter. Are you watching the boxing match? Nope. I don't cover that sport. 
not really obliged to, and they'll act like it's just blasphemous. Yeah. I don't get that. You're saying that you're always waiting for one of those guys to do the gentlemanly thing and shoot for a takedown. Yes. Yeah. Show a little class. Uh-huh. No need to stand there and brutalize each other oh. with those weights tied to the end of your fists. Mention Neanderthals. Be, show you got some poise and shoot a double leg. Here's my question, though. Uh, so even even though MMA has, has rivet, risen to prominence 51 weeks out of the year, and even though you have to assume that most MMA fans probably feel the way that we do, that we're, they're not really going to watch the boxing match, uh, how does boxing still have the power to harness these enormous pay-per-view buys for one-off events? And what is stopping mixed martial arts from doing the same thing because and correct me if i'm wrong but isn't the part of the thing about floyd mayweather is that people hate to watch him fight like they think he's boring and they don't like his attitude so like how is boxing pulling off this shit where maybe two million people are paying 75 dollars i know to watch this shit in hd whereas uh, you know, MMA is is setting records if it gets to a, to one million. You got to have Brock Lesnar on the card. You want to get there? Well, I think it's a a bunch of different things. But I think for one thing, name me somebody uh, in MMA who is as magnetic a personality as Floyd Mayweather. I don't know if we have one. Well, there's Chael P. and he's pretty good at what name he does. Name me someone who wins all the time. <laughs> Who is as magnetic a personality yeah, good, as he does. Good, good, good point there. Although, you know, in mixed martial arts, it's like, it's so easy to lose, man. You're, exactly. You're never going to have a dude probably put together, go 40 and 0 or whatever. Yeah. And the dudes that do, going to be kind of nice because they know that they could lose at any time. <laughs> yes. They're not going to Floyd Mayweather it up while they're up at the uh, at the podium because for all they know, that dude might choke them unconscious and drop them on the mat like a bag of dirty laundry. You know, We've seen that happen. Yes. And, and for me, that's one of the appeals of MMA is that it is really unpredictable, whereas I don't think boxing has that same kind of lightning strike quality to it uh, where anything can happen. I mean, you see upsets and stuff, but it it doesn't feel the same. But also I think that maybe for a certain type of sports fan uh, who they need, before they even hear that there is a fight, it has to rise to like a certain level of general sporting public consciousness. And it's hard for somebody to get there if they can't put together like a really long unbeaten run, which are uncommon in MMA. Uh, you know, you see a guy like GSP, who the UFC says is it's, it's pay-per-view king. You know, he's one of those guys that's kind of approached that point where if GSP is fighting, your, your friends who are sports fans, but not especially fight fans, they might have heard about it. That's the one where they, they might start asking you, hey, you get these fights, right? Can I come over? Uh, you know, you don't have a whole lot of that in, in MMA. Uh, but I think, you know, boxing has been pretty good about keeping one or two of those guys around, but it's only one or two of them. And the thing that also, you want me to pay $75 for, to watch this fight card when really there's only one fight that anybody cares about that to me. I mean, the, the UFC, you can accuse them of getting away from that a little bit, uh, in recent years and you wouldn't be totally wrong. Uh, but that's been one of the great things for me about MMA. If you look quality wise, uh, or value-wise, between that that Floyd Mayweather fight and UFC 165, not only is UFC 165 20 bucks cheaper, but there's just more there to to attract your attention. And then once MMA has your attention, you won't have to wait six or eight months before the next one. 
Because they will be back on Wednesday night in Brazil with a bunch of guys. That's right. Probably four days later. Uh, All right. Well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, my Just Saying Stuff is on a related topic because I feel like here is an unofficial metric about the relative popularity of boxing as related to MMA. A guy by the name of Edward Smith was supposed to fight in the opening bout of the Mayweather versus Alvarez fight card. Uh, but at least according to a tweet that I saw from Kevin Ioli, this is a quote, he was told there'd be drug testing and he left. Nevada State Athletic Commission has put him on indefinite medical suspension. First of all, smooth move Edward <laughs> Smith. Second of all, now this is just an undercard fight. It's the, supposed to be the first fight on the card, and it's untelevised, so, you know, not that big of a deal. Still, if this happened on an MMA card, I might wager that there might be a story or two written about it by some various websites or some various intrepid journalists who make a living reporting on the sport. Uh, you know, this happened on the biggest boxing card of the year, and yet when I went to Google it today, you know how many stories I found out about it? How many? Zero. Not a single one. Whereas I have to believe that as if this happened on the biggest MMA card of the year, you might find, say, a Stephen Morocco or a John Morgan or a Dave Meltzer trying to get to the bottom of it. Hell, dude might even show up on Ariel Hawani's show on Monday. As it is, nobody gives a shit. Just saying. Just saying. So wait, his... He was going to go through the training camp and everything, show up to the fight, all on the hope that they just wouldn't drug test him? I, I guess. If I could find a story about it, I would be able to tell you more, but that's all I know for now. All right. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, as some listeners of the podcast probably know, UFC President Dana White was none too pleased with a story that yours truly wrote uh, about Matt Riddle's uh, retirement. Uh, basically, the story was all just Riddle giving his explanation for why he decided to retire uh, a range of reasons that went from recklessly impulsive to almost sort of kind of good point. Mainly, the dude seemed like he was just tired of the sport and angry at it and at its fans uh, and was saying, fuck it, I'm out. Um, although it seems my guess is he's going to be back at some point. Um, but, you know, mainly just a dude venting. Dana White didn't like it, uh, interpreted a lot of it as being directed at the UFC when I think a really small portion of it was directed at the UFC, and I think that was pretty clear in the article. But Dana White went on uh, or did a, a online version uh, of a video from UFC Tonight. That is the show that the UFC does about itself on Fox Sports 1, a cable channel operated by its TV partners. Uh, wherein Dana White was quote-unquote interviewed by UFC employee Chael Sonnen. Speaking of intrepid journalists. Uh, and on this UFC show about the UFC, where UFC employees talk to each other on the UFC's TV partners channel, complained of one-sided journalism. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week talking about all the stuff that happened at UFC 165. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We are out. I feel like going to the fight and leaving when you find out there's drug testing, it, it's it's like if you, you showed up to school to take a test, and if they were like, all right, now everybody close your books and, and put away your calculators if you're like, well, fuck. Wait, I can't cheat? Yeah. Oh, I can't cheat.